Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, James Dunn of the Switzer Report shares his four stocks under 40 cents. James is pretty good at picking these cheap stocks, so I'm looking forward to seeing what stocks he's come up with. And then uh, Marcus Bogdan, who is the portfolio manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, which specializes in finding stocks that pay good income. He'll give us uh, three stocks that are often under the radar that people don't see, which are really uh, good income payers. And then we've got Paul Rickard, who's looking at the reasons why Telstra's share prices spiked. And we asked the question, can it keep on rising? Apparently, analysts are very positive about Telstra. And then we have a property lawyer who's basically an expert in real estate who's telling people, don't buy new apartments. You'll see why later in the show. So that is the show ahead. Let's go to James Dunn for four stocks under 40 cents. Thanks for joining us on the program, James. A pleasure, Peter, as always. Now, you wrote a really interesting uh, story, and a lot of people have commented on it in the Switzer Report, four stocks under 40 cents. Now, I've purposely haven't actually read it, so I can be enthused when I hear you explain the companies in question. So let's kick off. What was the first company? Well, the first one was MicroX, which I've looked at in the past, I have to admit, and it's taken a while to get going, Peter. It's, a, it's actually a really good advanced manufacturing story in Australia. It's, um, it's diagnostic equipment, but they, they've made a real breakthrough in, in x-rays with what they call cold cathode carbon nanotube. And if you look through the company, then the, the, the code is MX1, mm. the company's called MicroX, so I'd encourage people to look through all of their announcements and annual reports on the stock exchange. Look, they, they listed back in 2015 at 50 cents and they went to 57 and they've been as low as 12. And so when I wrote the article on, on Monday, they were 32. And we often say that uh, one person's share price fall is another person's opportunity. And, and I think this is one of those scenarios where if you, if you read through their stuff, and it's pretty interesting, they say that x-rays really haven't changed much since Rontgen invented it back in 1895. And most of it's with a heated filament. They've got a, a cold uh, cathode tube technology, which is far lighter, um, it, it's smaller equipment. So they've got, they've got some interesting contracts, both with defense forces and military and security and police, not just healthcare, mm -hmm. because they can use the x-ray in healthcare applications, but also, for example, in, in a security screening system that's mobile and lightweight for use at, at airports or bus terminals or anything like that. And they've got some uh, contracts with the Department of Homeland Security in the US. So they've got several different markets, Peter. And, uh, and the really great thing about it, if you look at this, is that the, the cathode tubes are manufactured in Adelaide. So it's advanced manufacturing in Australia, which we always like to see. Yeah, it's a great, great story. You gotta keep your fingers crossed. All these companies are always speculative, but this is in a real area making stuff. And it sounds like an interesting, um, uh, interesting company. What's the second one, James? Uh, Tieto Minerals, TIE, which is a gold uh, project developer, but in the, uh, in the Cote d'Ivoire, the, the old um, people might know that as the Ivory Coast in, in West mm -hmm. Africa. So look, there's quite a few uh, companies on the ASX that are focused in West Africa. And 
you know, you do have some political risk in, in countries uh, in Africa and other parts of the world, but look, sometimes you have it in Australia, but mm. we certainly don't have rebel groups like, like they have in parts of Africa. I'm not saying um, Tieto Minerals does have that. Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast is relatively stable. And, and look, they've got a, a gold um, project called Abuja, Peter, and they've, um, they've returned some spectacular high-grade intercepts. They're moving into development of the mine, uh, front-end engineering design. They're starting to build the, the, the site and the camp and all of that. They don't yet have final approval from the Cote d'Ivoire government, but reading between the lines, they've got everything else. And with those high grades, they've got a relatively low cost, about 839 US dollars an ounce. At present, gold's trading at 1800 US dollars an ounce, so around about. So they'll make, they'll make a fair bit of money, pay back high grade, so they'll pay back the spending relatively quickly and hope to expand the resource with uh, further drilling. And I guess over time, even though you say the uh, gold price is high, the outlook at, with um, eventually the strong growth leading to higher inflation, that's usually good for the gold price as well. So down the track, this could be an interesting play. What's your third one, mate? The third one is Spirit Technology, which a lot of people would see um, quite big advertising for at the moment. Um, I believe just outside Sydney Airport, certainly on the Melbourne uh, the, the, the M1 freeway. And Spirit Technology, it used to be Spirit Telecommunications, and that's really what they did. They were a, 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 mainly an internet and NBN style provider. But they've made um, some big acquisitions in recent years and really exited consumer businesses, uh, certainly the residential uh, internet provider business. They got out of that. And they are now really uh, arranged to service small to medium-sized businesses and, and government departments and uh, corporates, organisations such as universities with their high-speed internet, mobile, uh, voice, cloud, cybersecurity, and managed services. And, that, and when, you, when you've got all those offerings, Peter, you're able to bundle them and uh, create quite attractive pricing. And uh, this brand, Spirit, which um, now that I've mentioned it, I bet people see it because mm. they're, they're advertising quite heavily nationwide to, to build their brand. And uh, I think it's got a pretty promising growth outlook from here, Peter. If you, if you think about the history of small telcos, invariably they've started by actually focusing on SMEs uh, and realising that the big boys don't look after them as well as they want to be. And they often have created some great niches for themselves. Well, that's right. And in things in particular like cybersecurity, uh, mm. they, they bought a, one of the acquisitions. They've, they've made seven or eight acquisitions over the last four or five years, Peter. And they're all, look, there often is, we, we often use a phrase, um, integration risk and, Sometimes when you're, when you're bringing other businesses under your umbrella, they can take a while to bed down, but they're going pretty well with that. And they're, they're, they're expected to be profitable at, um, at 30 June, which was of course yesterday. We, we won't find that out for a while. Mm. But um, uh, telecommunications equipment company, NextGen, they, that was their most recent, uh, uh, I think that's their biggest acquisition. And that's, that's gonna be a big driver of uh, revenue growth. Yeah, that's a well-known company. All right, mate, let's go to your fourth one. Well, um, we're all talking about uh, materials of the future and the ASX does have quite a few lithium and uh, other kinds of stocks. And we've been writing about them recently in the, in the Switzer report, Pete. This one, INR, INR is the code. It's got a very 
advanced lithium project in the United States at Rhyolite Ridge in Nevada. But the, the beauty of this is that um, the deposit also contains boron and uh, they'll, they'll create, as they get the, the lithium uh, carbonate out, they'll also create boric acid, which is an industrial input. And what they receive for the boric acid they postulate, Peter, that that's virtually going to pay for the cost of um, getting the lithium out of the ground. So mm. the boric acid, which they've, they've sold, pre-sold uh, quite a bit of it in, in Asia, it will, if it doesn't pay for it all, it'll certainly put them in the very, very lowest, um, down the bottom of that curve for cost of lithium carbonate production. So look, Joe Biden's plans have, um, they, he wants the US to, have its own supply chains in these crucial metals of the future like lithium carbonate. And so it's a good time to be bringing on a, a very cost-effective lithium project in the United States. And look, uh, this week, Pete, they signed a big offtake agreement with uh, EcoPro of South Korea, which is the second largest uh, maker of, um, of battery uh, carbonate materials in the world. And that's gonna take about, they'll take about a third of Ioneer's um, annual production when they get started. But that's how these companies build their revenue. They, they sign offtake agreements. And so they know by the time they get to full production, they're not, they're not selling it in a market where they're holding it up and asking people to bid for it. They have pre-existing offtake agreements that really un underwrote the whole project and they know where their materials are going. James, thanks, there's four great ideas. Uh, for people who want to read more about what James' analysis says, have a look at the Switzer Report. James often comes up with some great ideas and people have made money as a consequence of it. Thanks for joining us, mate. A pleasure, Peter. Anytime. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Joining us now is the portfolio manager for Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, Marcus Bogdan. Marcus, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. Terrific to be here. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to say um, to you is I'll ask you about, are you surprised how well the stock market is doing considering we've gone through the, the tax selling month of June and you've got lockdowns taking nearly half the country. It is a bit surprising the market keeps on going up. It has been um, an extraordinary reco recovery uh, in the share market uh, over the last 12 months. Uh, the ASX 200 is up around 23%. But I think critically, um, that is underpinned by what we're seeing in the recovery in earnings. And so uh, for FY21, August reporting season is coming up very, very shortly. The expectation is around earnings growth of 25%. So I think the, the market 
and the participants are looking through these short-term lockdowns uh, and seeing where those upgrades in earnings are coming from. It's coming from the resource and banking sector, which are absolutely two pivotal uh, components of the ASX 200. So I think uh, in, in the short term, I think the fundamentals are absolutely justified. Yes, there are a, a range um, of challenges that we're, we've got to, to look at, but then I think that that's important to in terms of how we construct the portfolios. Yeah. Well, I want to get back to the actual fund later, but before we you know, promote, some, promote something I've got a link to, let's give away some good information first up. I've asked you to look at three stocks, lesser known stocks, um, unlike the banks, that actually are very good income payers. So what have you come up with, mate? So it's important that we want to have consistent dividend payers. Um, and so the three that I've come up with are Medibank, Spark New Zealand and Waypoint. Uh, Medibank uh, has actually done well through through COVID. They've grown market market share. The participation rate in in terms of private health insurance has an, has improved, and they are the market leader. And they have been able to consistently deliver a strong dividend. Uh, expectation is that dividend yield will be four percent fully franked, and we believe that that level of dividend is sustainable, and importantly, you're getting underlying growth in that, in that business. The second business is, is Spark New Zealand, which is the, really the, the former state telecom co company, the Telstra of New, in New Zealand. Uh, that has been a very consistent performer in that market. The industry structure is actually better than, than Australia. And that's been able to deliver um, very consistent dividends. It's upgraded uh, its dividend guidance to the upper end of its guidance uh, recently. Uh, and we expect that they can deliver a sustainable dividend yield of around 5.2%. And the last company that I'd like to talk about is Waypoint REIT. Uh, they own a number of service stations in Australia uh, with, with, uh, with Coles Express on them. Uh, they have very long leases. Uh, the average lease uh, is around still 10 years. Uh, and it's got 3% escalators so that in each year that, that that income can grow. Uh, and they uh, provide a very attractive dividend yield of around 5.9%. So they're three of the lesser known uh, com companies that we're looking at that we feel that can deliver consistent dividend for yeah. our investors. So Waypoint is fully franked or is it? No, it's a REIT, so it doesn't have the benefit of, of franking and, and that's why the underlying yield of 5.9%. 5, 5 yeah. We should explain to people that a REIT effectively doesn't pay tax like a normal company. So as a consequence, it doesn't have the benefits of franking credits. No. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and the Spark one, of course, is New Zealand-based, so they're not paying tax here in Australia. So once again, there's no franking benefit. Yes, but listed on the ASX 200. Yeah, okay. So we've looked at your 
Oh, now, we actually talked about what's going on with the stock market this year. What do you think is going to happen in the year ahead? Well, I think what we've seen in the last month or so is that we've got, um, you know, significant cross currents occurring in the market. Earlier in the year, there were really clear themes and the, the clear theme was the recovery in value compared to growth. But in the last month or so, given the, the complexity that we're seeing in the world, some areas growing very strongly, we've got lockdowns here, um, that tilting between, uh, between styles uh, has, has become more complicated. So we think that there's a three-pronged approach uh, to put portfolio investment in the coming year. In the first instance, we do want to be um, exposed to those companies that are generating really good uh, upgrades in earnings. And, and we've mentioned those, and that is in the banks and resources. They'll pay very attractive div dividend yields. Uh, the resource companies have um, been very disciplined on CapEx and providing um, capital back to shareholders. That's that's the first area that we want to be invested in. The second area that I think will continue to do well uh, are those consumer staple companies that even when we've got lockdowns continue to perform strongly. So Woolworths, Coles, and more recently Endeavour, which we've added to, which is a spin-off of the retail uh, liquor business and the hotel business out of, out of Woolworths. And the third area is, is that ultimately we will recover. The economies will reopen in Australia. Uh, and so we wanna be exposed to some of those potential beneficiaries. And they're companies like Ampol, CSL and, Ra and Ramsey's that should do better in a more normalized economic environment. Well, Marcus, we've looked at the past, we've looked at the companies that you like right now. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, 23, 24% gain for the stock market uh, last financial year. What is your, your conservative guess of what this market can do this year, this, this financial year? Well, I think what is critical and when we're looking into this new financial year is that the momentum that we're seeing in earnings and earnings upgrades continue. So the consensus forecast is for FY21 results coming up in August of earnings growth of around 25%. And then for the new financial year where we've started today, uh, the expectation is around 12% earnings per share, share growth. Now that should translate into maintaining the valuations that we've got today, but also translate into growing dividends for investors. And I do think that interest rates will, will stay near rock bottom levels yeah. and an average dividend yield of around 4% for the market compared to a cash rate of a quarter or 1% still provides the impetus and the interest in, in markets. Um, I do think we've had that big hockey stick recovery in markets, uh, we'll see a period of, of maybe greater consolidation. Uh, there will be areas of volatility given the na nature of, of what we're seeing in markets and the uncertainties. But I do think that the markets overall 
are underpinned by strong economic fundamentals. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Thank you, Peter. Well, I'll stock the poor Ricard and myself have liked for some time. Telstra had some good news uh, this week and the share price has taken off. Let's just see if this uh, takeoff can be sustained and let's get behind the news story, Paul. Yeah, Telstra's done pretty well, Peter. It's been going up pretty uh, steadily now for the last few months. Uh, close today at $3.76 and that's on the back of the news yesterday that uh, it sold 49% of its towers business. Uh, at a price that uh, exceeded most of the analyst forecast. In fact, uh, it took the analysts by surprise because Telstra has sort of previously indicated the deal wouldn't be done till the end of December. The fact that it was done on 30th of June, that was all very positive. Plus, uh, Telstra said that they'd returned approximately half back to shareholders by some sort of capital um, action, most likely to be an off-market buyback uh, later in the year uh, of about $1.4 billion. And so um, that's positive and that's worth about 12 cents a share but if done in terms of an off-market buyback we're only you know low rate and zero zero rate taxpayers will participate that's good for everybody so um, the market took that as a positive at $3.76 Peter it sort of reached the target that both you and I had some months ago mm. when it was down to the threes we said about $3.70 at the time I think from memory yeah but, but and of course some people said well can it get to four and both you and I at that time thought, well, that could be a, a really hard um, a benchmark to, to achieve. Would you be prepared to say, given this, it might actually start heading towards four over the next year or so? Yes, I think it's possible, Peter, because the um, the analysts are now pretty bullish on Telstra, which is, mm. look, they've sort of been right the last six months, I guess, but a number have raised their target. Uh, on the back of the news yesterday. So we've now got some brokers as high as $4.25, as I think there's might even be a $4.40 target out there. So I don't think $4 is out of the question because, uh, you know, it's still going to keep on paying its uh, 16 cents uh, dividend yield. That looks pretty secure. Um, and I guess it's in a market which is low growth, but also uh, not just low growth, but it's also a very stable market and a lot less competition now that sort of TPG, who was the big, you know, com big competitive force out there has got together with a Vodafone and it looks like the Vodafone guys have won. Mm. Uh, and we're now back to a, not an oligopoly, but whatever you call three major players and Telstra, Optus and uh, the merged Vodafone TPG. So not much competition, uh, opportunity to get some margin back. And I've probably in, in that environment where you're still getting a 16 cent a year dividend, uh, which is a reasonable dividend yield, fully franked, very hard for a lot of income investors to want to sell. And uh, I guess that means there's more upside. So I, you know, my own point of view, I think we've seen a lot of the rise. I think, you know, two thirds or so is at least uh, already behind us, but uh, still a little bit of value for those that um, haven't been on board the, uh, the Telstra bandwagon. Well, Paul, I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but you usually do this sort of thing. Have you worked out what the dividend yield would be on 375? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do it uh, very quickly, Peter. On, on $4, it's going to be 4%. So on 375, uh, it's going to be about four and a quarter. So, uh, um, plus franking, plus franking. Yeah, that's pretty close, plus franking. So, and that takes it up to almost, almost 6%, um, which, you know, when term deposits are at 0.3% and you don't have a lot of 
downside risk on Telstra. It's not a very volatile stock. I mean, obviously it's an equity and uh, we've seen it trade in a range over the over the years between you know, $7.50 down to $2.50. So it's not as though there's not much risk, but it's not the most volatile of stocks. And for many in, uh, income investors, that still looks pretty, pretty good. I mean, the big issue with Telstra going back over the last couple of years, Peter, has could it maintain its 16 cent dividend? I think now the market's pretty convinced it can. And uh, this sort of return, which will reduce the share the share base when it happens, that's that's an ongoing sign of confidence from the management as well, uh, that they think that 16 cent dividend looks pretty secure. If you look at the, the potential problems for Telstra out there, Paul, are there many? And if so, even if it's only a small number, what is probably the biggest risk to Telstra's very comfortable looking position right now? Well, I guess the biggest risk is um, still some sort of competitive action. So I mentioned it's uh, it's whatever you, you have when you have three players together, but um, oh, yeah, occasionally. This is an only one. <laughs> yeah, occasionally, occasionally, a bit like we saw on the supermarket, uh, we had with the supermarket wars between Woolworths and Coles and Audi and, and others, you know, you get some sort of irrational pricing. So that's risk number one, that, that really the competitive forces, you know, pick up in that whole mobile and, and uh, broadband space. Uh, I still think it's arrangements, ongoing arrangements and what its role with the NBN long term is still a bit of a risk. And then the third risk, Peter, is that um, to actually get that, maintain that dividend of 16 cents, it still needs to grow earnings. And what we've seen with Telstra so far has been able to sort of cut some costs, but really hasn't been able to pick up its revenue. So I still think, you know, there's still some work to do for Andy Penn and his team actually to get the sort of underlying earnings um, a little higher to be able to sustain that dividend over the long term. So that's what I describe as the risk. I don't think any of that particularly high at the moment, but obviously, you know, it's got general market risk. If the market wants to sell off 10%, you know, then, then Telstra will sell off by probably not 10%, but at least 5%. So you, you can't ignore the overall market risk of any stock market investment. Okay, Paul, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, I'm talking to Cathy Sherry, who is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales Law and Justice. Thanks for joining us on the program, Cathy. My pleasure. I, I must admit I was intrigued when I read a story in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, that you uh, penned. Of course, we don't pen anything nowadays. We, we type. Um, uh, and, and you made a point following the um, collapse of the apartment block in Miami that, you know, that we possibly here in Australia have similar challenges that are either going unnoticed or unsupervised. Can you just sort of uh, explain to us the, the link between what happened in Miami and what you think is going on here in Australia? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the first thing that needs to be said is we don't know yet why that building fell in Miami. Um, they, you know, there'll need to be a report. 
there does seem to be a suggestion that the building was in need of quite serious maintenance, which hadn't been done. You also only have to look at a photograph of it to wonder about the land that it, well, I say land in inverted commas, the land it was built on, it's literally on sand on the seafront and it's reclaimed land. Um, but so we, but we don't know. But one thing we do know for sure is apartment buildings, high-rise buildings don't routinely fall in the middle of the night in first world countries. So they, they do fall, but usually as a result of earthquakes mm. in countries that don't have building regulations or strong building regulation. Um, so it's really very, very disturbing. Um, I mean, I was concerned about it simply because I research apartments and it's always heartbreaking to see that kind of thing happen, same as the Grenfell disaster. But a number of years ago, I was doing some research on long-term management contracts in strata schemes. So they're the kind of management contracts that bodies corporate often find they've been bound by, by the developer. And I was looking at the United States because this is where we've copied a lot of our building from. So a lot of the master planned estates and high-rise buildings we have in Australia are kind of copied in form from the US. And I had read a report that was written in 1975 that was done by the US Federal Housing Authority. Um, and it was a report that was done as a result of huge problems in the condominium industry, in particular in Florida. So there'd been a massive boom in condominium development in Florida in the 1960s and 70s. Um, huge problems with development, amongst other things, building defects. Reading this report, it really struck me as that it was like Groundhog Day. I mean, everything the report was describing were the same kind of problems that we see in our strata industry. So all sorts of nefarious um, uh, practices by developers um, that purchasers get caught, caught out by. Um, and they included building defects. And I wasn't writing about building defects at that point, but when this um, terrible tragedy occurred in Florida, it occurred to me, well, everything else that Florida experienced in the 70s, we experienced, um, have experienced recently, we could be in for the same kind of danger. Um, particularly in relation to the role that not maintaining buildings will play in them uh, perhaps becoming dangerous and especially buildings that had underlying defects. And you only have to have read the paper in a cursory fashion to be aware that strata schemes in Australia have very serious problems with defects. So many purchasers have purchased a new apartment only to find that they are now the co-owner of a large high-rise building that has extremely serious building defects and it's up to them to fix it, which is often a very difficult, if not impossible, ask of ordinary homeowners. Kathy, has this always been a problem in Australia or is it something that's developed in recent times? Building defects, you mean? Well, the, the, the magnitude of, of building defects. The... Oh, no, it's, it's a much more recent problem. So, I mean, reading, there's been a report, a number of multiple reports. I, I, I don't spend an enormous amount of time doing research on building defects. One of the reasons is it just actually makes me so annoyed. I find it difficult to work in this area. But certainly reading the reports that have been done so far, um, there are a whole range of reasons why we have real problems today. One of the key reasons that people keep coming back to is private certifiers. Mm. So in 1998, to, you know, 2000, leading up to the Sydney Olympics, um, the law was changed so that private certifiers could sign off on designs and also occupation certificates for buildings. Prior to that, it had always been done by government, it had always been done by local councils. And I think that there is widespread agreement. There are enormous problems with that system. So enormous problems with private certifiers being underqualified, but also because of the very obvious conflict in interest that they are being um, 
are paid and employed by the same people whose building they are being asked to approve. So there are very, very real problems. A number of reports have identified that. So it, it, it certainly buildings have had defects in the past, but nothing of the magnitude that we've seen in the last 20 years. Mm. The, 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 the uh, apartment block in Hambush, it was Opal Towers, is that right? Uh, yes, yeah. Opal Towers, yeah. It, it, was that the, the first of its kind on that magnitude? Uh, that, that I'm aware of, that I'm aware of. I, I, yes, of, of that, that large-scale building, yes, that I'm aware of. And, and there's one in Mascot as well. But, but again, the reasons for some of those defects are not clear, and I don't want to, I'm not going to make any statement about what I think the reasons are for those problems. But... Um, I suppose in terms of, there've been problems with defects in buildings before. I mean, one of the, the diff, modern difficult challenges we have is that we, that very, very high rise complex buildings are a modern phenomenon. So we had apartment booms obviously in the 1970s and apartments were built all through the 1980s and 1990s. But these very large, very um, very large scale, very complex buildings are much a much more recent phenomenon. And so when there are problems with those buildings, it's actually much more complex than fixing problems in a three story walk up. Um, but to my knowledge, in history, I mean, I've never been aware of the fact that there were enormous problems with building defects, for example, in the in the 1970s apartment boom. Mm. So if someone is sort of contemplating buying a, a new apartment, what, what would you be the advice you would give them? Don't. It's mm. as simple as that. Yeah. Anyone who asks me about apartments, whether it's friends or family, and I know of many people who work in the strata industry as lawyers who would say exactly the same thing. If you want to buy an apartment, don't buy a new one. It is that simple. Building defects are so widespread. I mean, you can employ a good strata lawyer to do searches for you to find things out. Personally, I would never take the risk. If I was going to buy an apartment, I would buy a 1970s or 1980s apartment, 1990s. I mean, a beautiful 1930s Art Deco one would be very good as well, but they're quite expensive and there's not many of them around. But I would say to anybody I know, do not buy a new apartment in Sydney because you will be paying a premium for a brand new apartment. Um, you're definitely paying a higher price because it's brand new. And there is a strong possibility that you will be buying into a building that has defects of a whole range of varieties. They might be minor, they could be very, very serious. Um, but ultimately, there's a very strong likelihood that you as the purchaser will end up being responsible for them. You won't be able to sue the developer and you won't be able to sue the builder because you have no contractual relationship with the builder and because the developer never made you any promise that the building was defect free. So my very strong advice from what I know about the strata industry is just don't buy a new apartment. Okay. Uh, is there insurance available for someone who buys a new apartment and wants to be protected against an enormous defect bill coming, which will be shared amongst all, all the, the owners of apartments in the block? No. And there's a, there's a building, the New South Wales government in the last round of strata approvals introduced a building um, uh, bond, a defect, a bond system where developers have to pay bonds. I'm not sure how well that is working. Um, people I know in the industry suggest that the proportion that developers are required to pay in is not sufficient to cover serious building defects. Yeah. Um, do you think this is a, a, a problem for inexperienced developers or is it something that also is a problem with well-known 
highly respected developers? Uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to say. One of the things that's quite difficult in this area is getting information. There are certainly academics. I mean, I, I um, would recommend the work of um, uh, Dr. Nicole Johnson, who works at Deakin, who does quite extensive work in this area. But actually, getting information like that. I mean, certainly there, there is information about about de building defects available, but. A lot of people in the industry and owners themselves have an interest in things not being as public and as transparent as they could be, because of course people have invested a lot of money, um, and um, the you know people don't necessarily want want the public to know how widespread the problem is. Um, I don't think I could give any generalisation about whether you're safe buying from a particular one developer rather than another. Certainly, the New South Wales Building Commissioner is a vast improvement and, and he seems to be doing extremely good work. Um, that's certainly a great step forward. But government thus far has been extremely um, uh, ineffective um, at dealing with building defects in the industry. Do you think we should go back to a, a, regular, a regulator version of certification? Look, it's hard. I'm, I'm not a construction engineer, so that's one of the difficulties. I'm kind of slightly reserved about, about certainly making recommendations. The one thing I would say as a property lawyer is that developers have been able to get away with this because they're allowed to sell a product that's defective. It's as simple as that. Developers don't make any money until they can settle a sale. And the reality is the law has allowed them to settle sales of defective buildings. Um, if the law can be changed in a way that a developer cannot settle a sale, that is, cannot get their money until it is clear that the building is defect-free, then we will certainly see some kind of improvement in building defects. Developers will find ways to ensure that it doesn't happen. Um, there's, you know, I mean, there's been all sorts of recommendations about how to fix that. That's my feeling as a, as a property lawyer is that the reason why it has continued to happen is that if you can make money out of defective buildings, you will continue to do so. We need something to stop developers being able to sell in the first place and all manner of disclosure and, and bonds and all of those things, it does seem to me slightly that, you know, we're, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not going to result in fundamental change as long as developers can continue to sell buildings that are not um, clearly um, free of defects. And the answer also, you know, maybe to be more specific, is the answer is most certainly from, uh, must come from government. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, these are much, much bigger political issues that we've been facing in the last um, uh, 30 or so years, but the conviction that somehow government is always inefficient and it does things better and the private sector would do things better than government, I think, you know, in many areas is manifestly untrue. I mean, the pandemic itself is a good example of this. There are certain things only governments can do in the context of the pandemic. Only governments can have shutdowns. Only governments can mandate mask wearing. All of those things, only governments can roll out vaccine programs. And in this area, and there are other areas of property law that are like this, there are certain things that it really is simply better that government does and does properly, and we don't rely on the private sector to do it. Mm. So is there any government around the country that is seriously looking at making developers be accountable for um, their apartments if, there are, if they have defects? Well, the answer is the government can do it. I mean, one of the things I sometimes say in the area of property law that I think sometimes people 
people forget is state governments in Australia have plenary powers, enormous powers, subject to limitations from the federal constitution, which are not relevant in this area at all. State governments in, New South, in, in, in Australia can write any laws they want to write. It's just a question of political will. It's as simple as that. So but at this point in time, no state government or territory government is interested in actually protecting consumers buying apartments. Um, I think they are interested. I think they get they're continually talked out of it by by uh, various sections of industries that have vested interest in this vested vested interest in this not happening. Um, I mean, I, I, again, I don't. I'm not a construction lawyer. I you know I, I you know I think there are a lot of there are there are a lot of complexities in this area. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I keep coming back to the fact that we have in the past been perfectly capable of building buildings without major defects. Um, and we are not, we apparently appear to not be able to do that now. It's not like it's physically impossible to build a building without a defect. It is possible. It's mm. just a question of whether the law crunches down on people who do otherwise. Kathy, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the show. Clearly, we have been influenced by the lockdown in Sydney and we've got another week to go. So we will be doing it in this unusual way. But the content's still the same. Top quality people who know a real lot about investing. If you want to know more, have a look at the Switzer Report, switzerreport.com.au. Once again, thanks for joining us. See you now on Monday.